Friends, we are continuing our study of the Psalms of Ascents, the Songs of Ascents. So if you want to multitask, I'm going to open us in prayer and ask the Spirit of God to lead and guide us into His truth this morning. And then if you want to have your Bibles open to Psalm 124, that'll be the scripture upon which our teaching is based this morning. We come before you, Father, and we thank you that you've spoken to us in your word. And in one sense, we tremble at your word, and in another sense, we receive it with such joy. And Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that unless you are moving and working in our lives, our hearts would be shut off to your word. So give us the ability to receive and to believe and to rely upon your truth. Guide us into all the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. One more time, if you were able, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. In Psalm 124, we read, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you notice something, this is one of those um, psalms of a sense that give us a little bit of historical subscription. Remember what they are. They give us an idea of the context. They're not part of the inspired word of God, but they'll give us a clue in terms of the setting that it took place. And so here we're told it's a psalm of David. So David was the one who happened to author this particular psalm, and so thus, even though this is a psalm of ascents for the pilgrims, the worshipers, those who've arrived in Jerusalem to Mount Zion, it actually looks back to a historical time. And as a psalm of thanksgiving, it gives thanks in worship for God delivering them from an enemy, and we'll see how that enemy is described, and actually pretty vivid and picturesque images and terms, but it's an enemy desiring and committed to their destruction, desiring and committed to ravaging them. If you remember, just kind of in the way of review, I said whenever you look at a psalm, the very first thing you have to do when reading a psalm is identify its genre. By that I mean kind of its tone. What does it communicate and how is it communicating? It's not just taking truth and kind of spitting it out for us. It's doing so, it's poetry, it's the hymn book, it's the worship book, the prayer book of the saints of the Old Testament. And so each different psalm, each genre of psalm, will kind of have its own emotional tone. So for example, Psalm 23, when we read, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't know about you, that that just builds confidence, doesn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. So it's a confidence psalm, that's the genre of that. Or how about when we hear, bless the Lord, O my soul. Or sing to the Lord a new song. Or clap your hands, all you people. Oops, I forgot we're Presbyterian. You didn't want to hear, clap your hands, all you peoples. But in case you think I'm lying, it's there, commanded in Psalm 47. Because those are hymns of praise. A joyous tone, a joyous note. They are celebrating the works and the deeds and the acts and the words of God. 
Or how about when the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? We skip over that, just not too comfortable, right? Those are the laments. Okay, now David begins, and he says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, what is he doing? He's looking at the dangers of life. He's looking at the terrain. He is looking at the enemies that wanted to ravage him. And he is saying, but the Lord was on our side, and therefore we give thanks. We gather in worship, and we give thanks. So in other words, in this psalm, we get a real glimpse, a genuine glimpse into the very real peril of the kingdom. That within the drama of the Old Testament story, Upon the fortunes of Israel hinge the fortunes of redemption. Reading the Old Testament, you always have to have kind of this question in your mind that part of the drama of this is what is to come to the hope of Israel. Now, commentators seem to think that this particular psalm, Psalm 124, is hearkening back to a time actually recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I don't know if any of you were doing the Bible reading plan, but we read that this past week. 2 Samuel chapter 5 talks about David's conflict with the Philistines. And we read in 2 Samuel 5 that David inquired of the Lord, and he said, shall I go up against the Philistines? Obviously, they were enemies to the people of God. They were the ones that wanted to ravage the people of God. So David asks the Lord, will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal, Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. This psalm was probably one of the psalms written giving thanks for that victory over the Philistines. Now, in one of the things, in terms of one of the practical lessons that we learn here, One of the reasons David gives a thanksgiving psalm is he is communicating and he is nurturing into the people of God a sense of hope. We all need hope, and we need a living hope. Let me just give a biblical example. For example, this is why John wrote the Revelation. He wanted to give the people, and Jesus inspired, the Spirit inspired, the Word of God here, to give them a living hope in the midst of the dangers of the world, in the, very, in the midst of very real enemies. Let me tell you what Revelation is not. Revelation is not like a Da Vinci code that we're supposed to decipher. Okay, Revelation is not, oh, this is like my morning Sudoku. Gog, Magog, oh, maybe that's referring to this leader. Friends, that is not Revelation. Revelation is about a people who are about to undergo serious, intense persecution. It was written at the end of the first century, and the emperor there was a man by the name of Domitian, and he was not fond of Christians. And they were about to go through wide-scale, intense persecution. And it's in in the midst of that. What did God provide them? The book of Revelation as a book of unveiling to give them hope. So, for example, and I encourage, in fact, I cheat. When I read novels, I read the end of the story. Now, I don't know if you should do that with novels. With the Bible, I would definitely encourage, read the end of the story. I like to do it with novels because, hey, now I know what chapter 3 is all about. Hey, look at that. You read the end of the story. With the Bible, who, we may be in chapter 3. Who knows? But you need to know what the end of the story is all about. Revelation 21 gives us the end of the story. And it's an amazing end of history. Listen to it. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Listen to this. This is your hope, friends. If you're experiencing turmoil and confusion and doubt and suffering and sorrow, this is your future if you're in Christ. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. If you are in Christ, that is your future. Why did Jesus come? What is it all about? He came to make all things new, for the restoration of all things, the complete renovation of all things. And John the Apostle wrote this book at the end of the first century to give this people this hope. And Psalm 124, very practically speaking, is given a thanksgiving psalm where David, after coming through attacks from their enemies, is saying, God is your deliverer. He will lead you into escape. You have hope. Tim Keller writes of our need of hope. He said, John the Apostle knew that the way you handle your present is completely determined by what you believe your future to be. Wow. Your prospects. He says, a hope is a future prospect of something so great and so good that it makes it possible to face the hardship, face the difficulties. It makes it possible to face the hardship and to feel that everything you do is not pointless or meaningless. David is saying here in Psalm 124, we face real enemies. The Philistines don't want to have a cup of coffee with us and say, hey, maybe we could dialogue. They want to chop our heads off. So he asks the worshiper this question. If it had not been the Lord on our side, is that not a practical question for you and I to ask in our day-to-day life as you face family pressures and financial pressures and work and neighbors and whatever it is you're facing to say, who is on our side? And to understand that, David communicates this, and remember this is a poem, he's doing this in two ways. Two ways to communicate who is on our side. One, he's saying, you need to understand the threat. That's the first, remember I told you, inverted triangle every week. We go down, then we go back up. My sermon outlines don't change all that much. We need to understand the threat, it's real. And then we need to understand our warrior the one who really is on our side. Okay, look with me at verse 1. The psalm begins, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel not now say. Look at how this psalm is put together. Look at the structure. In verse 1, you have the worship leader. Pretend this is Richard. He's standing up there, and he says to the congregation, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let is that's a synonym for church, Let the congregation now respond. And they were probably doing it in song. Let the congregation now respond. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, and then they begin to sing out and resonate with the threats, the very real threats that were before them when people rose up against us. 
Then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. As one commentator put it here, says when the worship leader announces and calls on the congregation to join in, let Israel now say, the point is that God's presence was absolutely critical. For if he had not been present, their enemies would have crushed them. See, look with me at the vividness of how some of these metaphors are that are used to communicate the nature of the danger that is faced by the community of the people. Look at the image used in the liturgy to describe the threat of the enemies. First, in verse 3, you have that the enemy would have swallowed them up alive. Death, defeat here is described as being swallowed alive. Tremper Longman writes of this. He says, the enemy would have swallowed Israel alive. Probably, in the literature of the day, a mythological allusion to the Canaanite god Mot, which meant death, swallowing Baal. Indeed, Mott is described as a god whose upper lip is in the heavens and lower lip is on earth, swallowing everything in its path. That's the first picturesque way that David is calling on the congregation to understand the reality of the threat. But now look at verses 4 and 5. The next way they go about it, he says, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Here is another ancient mythological illusion. See, we tend to think of sea and water, and what do we think? Oh, I'm going to the beach. Maybe I'm going to surf today. Oh, surf's up. Isn't it beautiful? What a nice view. That was not the ancient Near Eastern view of the sea. Waters, the sea, the flood represented for the people of that culture, the people in the ancient Near East, turmoil, chaos, a sense of disorder, a sense of, in a way, uncreation. Let me just walk us through a couple of Old Testament biblical examples. We looked at the end of the story. How about we look at the beginning of the story? I'm taking you through the whole Bible today, getting a nice little survey course, Okay. We looked at the last page. How about the first page? Genesis 1, the account of creation that begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Listen carefully to how verse 2 describes the context of creation. The earth was without form and void, which are a Hebrew phrase meaning it was chaotic, in turmoil, in disorder. It was a picture of chaos. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That emptiness, that void, that formlessness was described as a raging waters that the Spirit of God was envisioning in order to speak into, and what creation was, was God bringing order out of chaos, creation out of uncreation. So creation is depicted as God bringing order out of chaos, and it's described as the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters, getting ready, ready to bring order out of that chaos. Or how about one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 46, that gives a tremendous promise of saying God is our refuge and strength and ever, a very present help in trouble. By the way, a confident psalm. God is our refuge and strength. But listen to how the trouble is described. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and form, though the mountains tremble at the swelling. Look at this. Trouble here is described as waters roaring, foaming, going crazy. A picture again of things falling apart. And in the midst of that danger, in the midst of that threat, God is a very present help. He's a refuge. One final example. Isaiah chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. Wonderful promise. And then Isaiah says, For when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Notice that the waters are presented as a threat. But the promise is when you pass through them, not if you pass through them, when you pass through them, I will be with you. They shall not overwhelm you. Which means even when we come to the end of the story, what I read earlier in Revelation, when he saw a new heaven and an earth, when he says there, there will be no more sea, doesn't mean there'll be no more beauty of the oceans, no more beauty of water, no more. It means there'll be no more uncreation, no more death, no more turmoil, no more chaos. So David is saying, leading the people in worship in this responsive congregational worship, if God were not on our side, we'd be consumed by these threats. We would be swallowed up alive. We'd be consumed by the raging floodwaters. They would rage over us. And then in verses 6 and 7, he says, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as what? Pray to the teeth. Now, the threat here is described as a wild animal who devours its prey and a bird who needs escape from the snare of the fowlers. Now, friends, this is the Old Testament. The Old Testament communicates spiritual truth in very physical ways, right? I think we can relate to wild animals, raging waters, the picture of being swallowed up alive. That's kind of a picturesque picture, isn't it? And it's tempting for us, and this would be wrong, for us to think, ah, that was the Old Testament. The threat no longer exists. It's not as real. I don't have to worry about going out after, you know, I don't think there'll be something to swallow me up alive. I don't think there'll be a wild animal out there to, I don't think the waters are going to roar in front. But listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say, depicting its truth, kind of from a New Testament perspective, letting us know as followers of Jesus, the threat is just as real. The threat of our own flesh, like Romans 7, the threat of the world, and the threat of the forces of evil. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, we are deceiving ourselves if we don't think we have very real enemies right here, right now, in 2018. The question comes, do we kind of functionally appreciate and understand that the threat against our soul is very real? And they don't want to sit down and have tea with us. Our enemies want to ravage us and destroy us. If I can give another illustration, I really think, and I've got to speak to us as Presbyterians here for a second. 
I think we have to admit that this is an area where we can learn from our Pentecostal friends. And here's what I mean. I think they rightly emphasize invisible, spiritual, supernatural realities. They rightly emphasize the reality of a supernatural war, that world, that the forces of evil are real. Just because you can't tangibly see it doesn't make it any less real. Now, no, I clearly do not agree with the prescription that says God being on your side means some sort of health, wealth, prosperity teaching. But just because we don't believe the solution, we don't believe the prescription, doesn't mean we ought not believe in the reality of the supernatural forces that are arrayed against, against your soul. And you will only appreciate, you will only be captivated by, you will only be galvanized by the way of escape to the degree that you understand the reality of the threat. So my question is not just on Sunday morning where I guess for some reason you're a captive audience, you're sitting here listening to me. But Monday through Saturday, the other six days a week, how aware are you of the reality, the invisible realities of the supernatural world? And that, yes, it may not be described as swallowing you up alive, torrents of water raging over you, wild animal being prey to their teeth. But the cosmic forces of evil are arrayed against you. Your own flesh is arrayed against you. And the world is arrayed against you. Maybe we need to recognize a little bit more that the dangers that war against our soul are real. So friends, I ask, who is on our side? How do we survive this threat? How do we escape? See, listen, the psalm begins with a call to worship. The worship leader, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, respond, O Israel. And then the Psalm ends, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's look at this from a New Testament perspective. David, from an Old Testament perspective, if it had not been the Lord on our side, and what happens? They come in and they conquer the Philistines. But from a New Testament perspective, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. The flood would have swept us away. Then it says in verse 6, we have escaped like a bird. We have escaped. Let me ask you a question. How did we escape? Friends, we escaped because there was one, a warrior that we need to understand who did not escape the threat. See, the threat to us was real. But how was the Lord ultimately on our side? See, David said of their enemies, they would have swallowed us up alive. The torrent would have gone over them, but it didn't. But there was one that the torrent did go over. There was one who did go over under the waves. There was one who had to undergo the flood of God's wrath like Noah did and was not provided an ark as a way of escape. His name was Jesus. See, why weren't we swallowed up alive? Why weren't we swept away in the flood? Because Jesus was. What was going on when Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was suffering a real death. He was being swallowed up by death. The flood, the torrent did sweep him away on the cross. He was swept up so we would never have to be. He was swallowed up so death, could never have the final word over you. 
Do you know what has the final word if you were in Christ? New life. Resurrection. No more mourning. No more crying. No more death. No more pain. The renovation of all things. I haven't quoted the Lord of the Rings in a while. It's time for a quote. I've got to repent of my not quoting from Sam Gamgee. When Sam is asking Gandalf the wizard, will everything sad become untrue? Gandalf says, yes, my dear friend. Everything sad will become untrue. Why? Because Jesus underwent the waves. Because Jesus was swallowed up by death. For us, resurrection and the complete renovation of all things has the final word. And it has the final word so that we can say with confidence what I think is the New Testament counterpart to this Old Testament psalm. Because listen to the parallel between Psalm 124 and the text of Scripture Gabe read a few minutes ago from Romans chapter 8. David begins the psalm, if the Lord had not been on our side, what does Paul say? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God is on our side, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, he was swallowed up. The torrents raged, the waters raged over him. God did not spare us, but did what voluntarily, willingly gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. In other words, stood condemned in our place. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, and who is right this very second, in the place of authority, interceding for you, Right now, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tell me this doesn't sound like Psalm 124. The threat is real. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? What do you think? No. Distress? No. Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? How about danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who is on your side? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, how about this, nor anything else in all creation, I dare you to come up with something. Anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that a living hope? Who is on our side? David says if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, and he proceeds to describe how they could be destroyed. God says, I am through Christ on your side, and I was destroyed so that you will never have to fear being destroyed. What do you think of that? Let's pray. God, I know from my soul all I can say is, oh Lord, help me be controlled so much more by the fact that you're on my side. Because I can come up with a million things always that aren't on my side. I need help remembering. I need continually to be remembering that you were on my side and that you demonstrated it in the person, and the work, and the revelation, and then the reconciliation of Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, the only Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so, Father, 
As I pray each and every Lord's Day, teach us to understand the gospel more. It is our greatest need. Forgive us for reducing the gospel, for truncating the gospel. Help us to see the gospel in its wholeness, in its fullness, in its hugeness, in its bigness, to be captivated by it and its glory. In Jesus' name, amen.